Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free and Clear. I'm John Collins, founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have Naomi Wright, the founder of NaomiWrightMinistries.com. And we're asking the difficult questions people have about religious abuse, breaking them down in simple terms, and helping people to become free and clear. Naomi, it's early for you today. How are you? It is early for me, John. I um, have decaffeinated tea next to me. I don't know what I was thinking, Um, but I'm ready. I really love this conversation, um, and I'm excited to jump into it with you. This is one of the fun conversations. The last few have been kind of difficult, and I feel like a lighthearted one is necessary to lift the mood a bit. Yes, and you know, it's even funny that you call it that because anyone who doesn't have our past experiences would not find this lighthearted. But in our past worlds, this is light, guys. So enjoy it. Enjoy your reprieve. (laughs) Yeah, and and I I, I guess I should qualify that. People who are wanting to break free. This is not going to be lighthearted. This is probably going to be a little bit painful. But for people who have escaped and realize how this was used, they become, it's almost humorous. They look back on their lives and they think about the things that were said. And it's just so absurd. Some of the things that were said under the under the disguise of religion. Absolutely. And I think it can also um, just bring some more stuff to light for people where maybe they didn't know what to do with something or what was happening. They're like, okay, this makes more sense. And that can help people to move move on further as well. Right. And for me, and I'm sure the same goes for you, who are working with people who have escaped and, and taking the abuse that we still get coming from the cult, I think it's also a bit comical for people like us because we instantly know when we're going to get hate mail in the bottom of the body of the of the email because at the top we're going to see statements that are almost replicas of what we heard in the cult things that you would never say outside of the cult and they're used as tools for abuse. Yeah, that's an interesting point as well. So there's a lot of different angles to take this conversation. So like John said, for those of you um, out there who this really is going to resonate with um, in a more current way, yes, this might be a tough conversation to listen to. But again, hopefully it's helpful and it serves you. And for those of us who have some space between then and now, it might still bring some things to light and get you thinking about different key phrases and loaded language that maybe you haven't really thought of before. You just set it on the shelf and didn't know what to do do with it. Um, and then, John, yeah, like you said, for some of us, too, it just sounds so ridiculous now that it's hard not to laugh about it. <laughs> right. It is. All right. So let's get into it. Today's topic is loaded language. And we're talking about the things that cults use for their advantage to help indoctrinate people that cults alone know and understand. And I'm going to bring it up in the same form as we always do in the form of questions that come from people who have escaped or who are in our support groups or contact us, the sum of those questions into the form of a set that we can talk through. The first one, my wife was raised in a cult. She left the group before we were married, but it still seems to affect her. In our new church, sometimes, words and phrases, which seem normal to me, make her emotional and sometimes irritable. Why is this? 
Yeah, so the pretty straightforward answer to this is that she's being triggered, um, to use kind of a, a hot word of our day right now. Um, these words likely have other meanings and associations for her. So what they mean to you is not necessarily what they mean to her. And even if she has replaced the meaning, there can still be this like visceral, just innate programmed emotional response when she hears that word. So she has likely been told that those words mean something in her past cult group and now even though she's learning, they don't really mean that. She emotionally hasn't caught up to that. Um, these triggers from past trauma, they're so wired into us, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're just going to happen. And yeah, I mean, someone can get emotional in terms of feeling like they're going to cry. They can maybe start to have a, a panic attack and feel panicked anywhere from a mild one to a major one. And I love that this question includes feeling irritable. Um, that one really resonates with me personally. Uh, whenever I've had this happen, I do. I get really irritable where if my husband even wanted to provide comfort, it's like I don't want to be touched. I don't want to I don't want anyone to say anything. I just need my own space to work that through. And I wanted to give a personal example, um, John, I don't know if you're open to sharing one too, if you can think of something, but um, there's probably many, you probably have a list. But for me, when I walked into um, a mainstream Christian community specifically, the words, uh, the word community was actually really hard for me. And I wanted mm. to bring up this example because the word community was not used in my cult group. It actually wasn't a loaded language word. <clears throat> but it was an experience. So my experience right. of community, without the word ever being attached to it, still made that word really, really hard for me when I walked into any other kind of group and not even just a church community. Anything, even um, any sort of group, like if I had joined a book club as an example, which I don't think I did, but that's all I can think of right now, but a book club or an art club or something like that, anything where I then felt this expectation that these were my people. And right. I'm like, I don't know if I want all these people to be my people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might, I right. might attach right. to one of them and that's it. And so that was really tough for me. And my husband didn't understand that. No one really understood that. And so any way of um, finding support such as hopefully this episode will be, is really, really helpful. Right. I I have a few examples, but most of mine aren't dealing with community. For me, it's more the insulting phrases that were used. I, I can remember whenever I first started to realize, I think subconsciously, that this type of thing was used. We had some people who had came into our cult church who were, I guess, guests of somebody else who was a cult member, and they would never have understood some of these words and phrases. But the minister was speaking very harshly against non-cult members. And I remember looking at this family who were oblivious to all of this. They had no idea that they were even being insulted. But phrases like foolish virgins weren't used in the context of what the, you know, the passage of Scripture that was being read to the family who is listening to these insults. They're thinking that this pastor is literally talking about, you know, the phrase about the foolish virgins within the context of the Bible. But no, he's talking about people like themselves who are in this church who are not believers of the cult leader. And that's just one of 
you know, there's many, many examples of this where people were leaders in this in the cult that I grew up in were offensively using words and phrases to target the non-members and make an us versus them mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can remember in my new church, we were going through, I think it was a study on Hebrews and in our Sunday school, and they were going through passages in Hebrews and tying it to other you know, chapters and verses in the New Testament. And this came up, this foolish virgins thing. I nearly came unglued. I think that might have been the first time that I actually got up and walked out and just sat in the foyer because I was being triggered and I could not take the triggers. And wow, John, it's it's so unlikely that that would actually come up too. It's not that's not a commonly used phrase in mainstream right. churches. Right. So goodness, that would have been really hard. And to be fair, it the phrase itself may not have came up, but in the way that these are used in the cult, it isn't just one phrase that's used. There's one phrase that is an insult that is built upon another phrase that is used as an insult. That phrase is built on another, and there's the spider web of words and phrases that for you to understand phrase 20, you have to understand phrases 1 through 19, what they mean, how they're tied to the cult theology, and how they can be used to manipulate people to hate other people. Yeah. And John, my my social worker self is going to jump in here for a second. Not that it ever leaves me, right? Um, (laughs) But I want to go back to what you did when that happened. You walked out of the room and you gave yourself some space. And I want to key into that for a second. For any of you who are listening, you have likely been taught that you sit there. You sit there Mm, and you deal with it and you shut yourself down and you bear with it. You kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And you do what you're supposed to do because that's what you've been taught is you, you fall in line. You do what everyone else is doing no matter how you're doing and what's going on inside of you. And that in and of itself is really, really damaging. Um, Getting triggered is damaging. How you then don't handle it and take care of yourself is further damaging. So what John did in that example is he took care of himself by removing himself from the situation until he was okay to step back into it. He may not have been okay to step back into it for a year. I just want to point that out. This isn't, oh, I step back into the same meeting. So for any of you listening, I just want to point that out. If this happens, take that space that you need and take care of yourself. Absolutely. I think you and I are aligned on this, and I differ with some of my peers in that I strongly feel that if you're being triggered in a church service and you need to sit out, you might skip a few Sundays, you might skip a few weeks, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to go at your own pace whenever you're healing. It, I liken it to, uh, you know, an injury to your leg. If you were to have injured your leg with a knife and you've got this severe cut in your leg, you're not going to jog a marathon. You may want to, you may try to, and people may tell you to, but until that wound heals, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, and I, when I first started going, I had weeks in between, and I actually really enjoyed where I was because it was 10,000 people, and I walked in and no one knew who I was. I walked in, I enjoyed it, and I left before anyone would talk to me, and that was what I needed at that time. I needed that total space. I needed to just be alone, check it out, not feel any implied pressure no perception of pressure. Um, But the reason I still had weeks in between was because I also needed to not feel within myself like I had to go. 
And so right. I was just kind of exercising my right to choose when I went. Um, and so we can have different reasons. It can be because we get triggered and it can be just because I need to do this differently than I have before. Right. All right, let's get into question number two. The leader of our church we attend frequently uses a phrase that makes me uncomfortable. Spiritual husband. He applies this to himself instead of my husband. Is this scriptural? So full disclosure, everyone, I um, I saw these questions in advance. And um, my I, I, <laughs> I typed an answer to this one that I'm not going to read because, John, you'd have to go bleep it out. But it's a four-letter word, and then there's the <laughs> word no. <clears throat> so the second word is no. And now I'm going to get into it a little. First of all, even applying this to your actual husband would be kind of weird. So yes. I want to put that out there. Um, what... I'm going to break this down a little bit as to what I think has happened here and then why it's really, really concerning. And I may be mistaken. So, John, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, too. But what I think someone is likely doing and how they got here is that the church leader is likely taking this from the metaphor of the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. But he's right. twisting it then for his personal use. And so I want to break down what that actually is about. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Ephesians 5.27, and Revelation 19.7, we see references to Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. So this is a metaphor. And in this metaphor, the bride is all the followers of Christ. And they are called to prioritize unity with one another. So getting along, playing nicely in the sandbox, so to speak, even though we we don't all agree on everything, um, we are called to kind of not sweat the small stuff and say, you know what, we're a part of this collective bride, quote unquote, this collective church. And um, Jesus then is the head of this church or uh, the, the head of the bride. So he is the bridegroom. So this is supposed to be a beautiful metaphor about this collective church or bride it includes all genders, races, ethnicities, ages, and it's just this one unified group, um, single people, married people, you know, just all of us together um, and all looking to Christ as the person that we call our Lord <clears throat> or the groom, so to speak. This is not sexualized at all. Um, and we as as people might tend to think of that. This is not a sexualized concept. Um, and it also does not support polygamy. I can see someone taking this and and trying to bring polygamy out of it of oh well, we're all we're all kind of one as collective, so it could be a bunch or or Jesus is the head and he's over all of us and it's a bunch and it's again, it's all ages, it's it's all genders, it's everything. Um, so this metaphor is truly to reflect a really a special union and a committed relationship um, that goes both ways. Um, Christ, Christ is here for us. He He intervenes for us. Um, he died for us, and we're gonna, you know, be be in His presence in eternity. And in return, we are um, we're choosing Him. You know, we make that choice that Jesus will be our Lord, and so it's this committed relationship like a marriage. Um, this cannot apply to anyone other than Jesus. 
It wouldn't even make sense in any other context outside of Jesus. And the reason this matters so much, you guys, is because this reference carries serious risks when it's used by a church leader. Now, there's some things that church leaders do where we just don't like it. Um, it's, It's incorrect theologically, but it's otherwise maybe not you know, on the degree of harm, it's it's a two instead of a 10. This is a 10. This is potentially very harmful. And this is why it has the risk of the leader requiring submission to him, particularly by the females in his church. Right. And that opens up a risk of sexual abuse. And so right. this is very, very confusing language and so easily manipulated. No one is your husband except for your husband. And if you do not have a husband, then you do not have a husband. No one is taking that place for you on this earth. Right. It's funny. Naomi mentioned that she read the questions ahead of time. She did not read my responses nor my notes ahead of time. And I think went point by point what I was thinking about <laughs> saying. <laughs> so I'm going to skip over all of that stuff and go to the historical part, which interests me anyway. Beautiful. I love when you bring that in. Yeah, this this was problematic. This is not something that, um, you know, is just growing today. This is something that is a result of seeds that were planted a long time ago. And it relates back to the, you know, the foolish virgin loaded phrases. There are numerous cults who consider themselves the bride. And they, by this, they're implying that people who aren't a part of their group are non-bride. They're other Christians who are believers in Christ and would otherwise be considered the bride of Christ. These cult groups are not inclusive of other Christians. They consider themselves the bride. And during the growth of the Latter Rain movement, the leaders of the movement were giving unusual power and superiority to leaders of the sect, including pastors. And they weren't really vetting them to make sure that these were men who were deserving of their posts. And literally all that you had to, had to have was somebody to lay their hands on you and prophesy or pray, etc. You didn't even have to know the scriptures. You could pretend to know them and say that you're a pastor and get a following, a church, a, you know, people who are under your leadership. The problem is that this overloaded theology of the word bride creates a set of a subset of doctrines that are related to this that all are the same nature of loaded phrases. They're all about the husband, the wife, the bride, etc. And what happens is whenever you have a leader who is given unusual authority over his congregation, a pastor or a, you know, some evangelist I think have even used this type of phrase, what happens is they start running off with their own doctrines and loaded phrases that they add on to this. I don't believe that the cult leader that was in the the main sect that I escaped used this phrase, but I can tell you that there were numerous ministers who were who came out of that came as a result of his ministry that are using these phrases. I can't remember the exact leader of the cult that this question first came up, but it came up multiple times to me in, in emails and support groups. But one example that I will use, there was a minister, you mentioned polygamy. There was a minister in Africa who was in the same cult that I escaped, 
who became the spiritual husband, and that included sexual rights to all of the women in the church. He was videotaping these sex acts with these women, and he's he went to prison. He actually re recently died, I think, of COVID while he was in prison, but he had a polygamous sect that was using this phrase, this overloaded phrase, th this loaded language, to have sex with members of his congregation. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much of a response to that. Um, it's just, it's horrific. <clears throat> it's right. absolutely horrific how people will use so-called religious language for their own gain to manipulate people. It's awful. Um, and I'm glad, I am glad though that he um, went to prison for it. It's nice. We don't always see justice in our lifetime. Um, and so that, that was nice to hear. That made me smile when you said that. <laughs> All right, next question. We recently left a religious cult. I never realized how abusive it was until after leaving or how often we said insulting things about other people. We had a set of words that we used to label unbelievers that they themselves would not even understand. Looking back, I'm wondering how many visitors must have felt that way when they heard these things, or if they even knew what these insults meant. If the leader was trying to save the lost, as he claimed, why did he use terms that outsiders wouldn't know? I, <clears throat> I don't want to say this flippantly because ultimately the, the answer to this um, creates a lot of suffering. The truth of what I think I'm about to say creates a lot of suffering. Um, and that's what, that he wasn't truly trying to save the lost. That he was trying right. to look important. He was trying to look like he had a special connection with God. And so this was really all about him and his power and prestige and whatever else he's getting out of it, money, sex, whatever it is. Um, and it, his heart wasn't truly to save the lost. That wasn't actually his goal and his intention. And loaded language is intended to create the sense of exclusivity. And it's the sense of exclusivity, not even in and of itself, but there's this kind of cloud of mystery and even sometimes uh, mysticism that goes along with it. So it also is, if it's done well, which it's not good to do it at all, but if they do it well, it's going to create a sense of intrigue in the people who are hearing it. Um, so the goal is to create this division, like you've mentioned earlier, John, between those who are in and those who are out or that us versus them mentality. Right. Um, now, ideally, like I said, if it's being done well, though it shouldn't be done at all, um, it should only be done. It would only be done to the degree that those who are out desire to be in. And that mm -hmm. th that would be part of the goal here is that people who are out want to know well, what's this about. So there's this intrigue, there's this interest being um, designed to bring people in. But and so when it's done well, it isn't done to the point where they, you know, outsiders say, just forget it. I'm out. I don't get this. I can't follow this. Forget it. Um, though people who are in in that moment could feel even more special. Right. So this is this gets kind of right. like clunky um, because people who are in when people who are out are like, I definitely don't get this. People who are in can be thinking, well, I do get it. And so suddenly mm -hmm. they're very spiritual. You know, they're, right. they're way more spiritual than these other people. And so that actually helps keep them in because now it's fueling right. their pride. And some leaders in the situation, they are just so darn arrogant that they're not even good at their own game. 
as it sounds like was the case in this example, where they're they're not even bringing new people into the fold, quote unquote, to speak, to use loaded language. Um, They're not even doing that. Um, They're literally just keeping people out. Um, And that's, again, just their own pride and arrogance getting in the way of I'm so elite. Simply put, this type of loaded language is not used for non-members. This is something that leaders of a cult will use to manipulate people who are members. And it was never intended to be something that was even to be heard by somebody who doesn't understand the language. One of my favorite books, post-cult, is the book Propaganda by Edward, I think it's Edward Bernays. And it talks about how to mass persuade a lot of people. And if you read the book and understand the concepts, Basically, what it is saying is that for you to convince a large number of people, you have to give them subject matter that they themselves come to their own conclusion, and that conclusion needs to be the point that you're driving towards them. In the cases of this loaded language, they're saying things that aren't direct. They're saying things that only the people who are in the cult can even understand, but those who are really good at it are only saying things in a way in which the listeners can think about it and come to the conclusion of the overall statement that's trying to be made. And within a cult, it's a hierarchy. It's like a pyramid scheme. You have a central figure at the top of the pyramid, and underneath the central figure is a row of enforcers. This question no doubt came from one of the people under the main central figure. It was an enforcer. And he's only repeating the loaded language that was made by the central figure. So he has no no intention of saving the lost. He's basically parroting what the central figure said. And as you're talking, I'm I'm reflecting back to, you know, my I suddenly drifted back into my living room growing up and because my dad was the central figure. And so I guess I was sort of privy to these behind the scenes conversations that would take place and these sort of um, preparatory conversations between like him and my mom or him and, you know, another uh, male figure in the group who was close to him. And I don't think looking back that they all really knew what they were talking about either at times. Right. Because they would be reading or my dad would be in his room and he'd be reading um, a book and he'd he'd come out, a religious book, um, and he'd come out and he'd be like, wow, you know, kind of like this just hit me, sort of this aha, mm-hmm. this just hit me moment. And all of a sudden it'd be like, well, and this connects to this and connects to this and connects to this. And I mean, the right. whole thing is just a, a, a spider web of a mess because none of none of what it connected to is actually interpreted correctly and so what they just did wasn't and I remember my mom doing this I remember her reading being like oh wow um and we had another woman who lived with us and I I did have a polygamous family but she was not a part of this um she was sort of an aunt figure to us um and helped take care you know helped partner in taking care of the family while my dad was traveling um and I remember she struggled because she wouldn't have these aha moments Um, Mm. And so she used to say, I heard her say this so many times, I'm not as spiritual as them. And so it even created division within the group itself. And in reality, this woman just she she wasn't seeing stuff that wasn't there. She wasn't 
having these connections made in her mind that didn't actually exist. In reality, she was probably in better shape and had a better shot right. than, than anyone else <laughs> in it. Um, but she beat herself up for that. And what that actually did in turn is make her more submissive to those who were having these aha moments. And mm-hmm. so for those of you who um, are looking back and that resonates with you, or maybe you're someone where you're like, it never really made sense to me. One, it may have never really made sense even to the people saying it, not fully if they really thought about it well. Um, and if they thought about it well, it may have debunked other things because it didn't all actually, it wasn't all internally cohesive. Um, and so for you, if you've beaten yourself up thinking, well, I just didn't get it. I wasn't as good as them. Um, in reality, you may have been the most healthy. Right. I was actually hoping that you would bring this point up and I did not coerce you in any way to do so. (laughs) I'll just make it clear right now. What you've described is basically the nature of how a splinter group forms off of the main sect of a cult. And you're describing how the this loaded language, you're actually describing the core of what we're trying to get at in this episode. Not just that it is used to manipulate people and it's destructive. What you've brought up is the fruits of what this type of destructive language does. So the cult leader and the enforcers of the main trunk, they have their own loaded language. And it's very vague. People are sent home to go to their own conclusions of what this loaded language means. But that opens the door for other people to get their own spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual revelations of what what meanings these, these loaded language has. And so what happens is you get somebody who has an itch to get their own following or who thinks that they're divinely inspired by God— And then they create their own subsect or splinter group of the main cult. And that's exactly what you're describing whenever you talk about what your family was going through. Yeah. And hearing you say that just, um, it made me think that in mainstream experiences that I've had, people are, leaders are better at defining their terms because they want people to understand. um, They want to actually teach them. And when I look back to uh, cult experiences, they're not defining their terms. They don't necessarily really want people to understand. They just want them to need the leader. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, and if you ask the leader to define his terms, I'm, I'm kind of curious. It's very possible you get a, a vague answer because he might not really know. And he also might not want to commit because then he might have a harder time changing it later on a whim when it serves him better. And so you're right. kind of trying to hit a moving target in that situation. Right. Absolutely. All right. The next question <clears throat> The cult church that my wife and I left was more extreme than some of the others in the cult. Our pastor knew many secret mysteries that other churches, even in the cult, did not know. Why did our group use words that the rest of the cult did not? Well, ultimately what's going to happen, like John just was speaking to, excuse me, is that this will create splinter groups. Um, But back to the reason why, why it's being done. So this pastor wants to be the next elite leader. He wants to be the, the new prophet with the new special revelation. He wants to be the next guy, you know, and so he's trying to outdo and kind of cut off 
um, other churches that are connected in order to create this, this sense of I'm now elite, I'm the, now the one that God's giving special information to. And so it's almost like this competition in a way. Um, but it does, right. it creates splinter groups. And to define that, uh, these are groups that came from a larger parent church. So there's a bigger church, and then they became different enough that they weren't recognized as closely related anymore. Um, so they became their own their own group, or and sometimes in their own mind they see it as their own religion, even though there's there's this this um, core that they all have in common. Um, they can consider themselves their own religion. Um, we would likely cluster them together. Um, but they probably would not. My group did not. If if I was right, if, if I had been told, oh, you're a part of this larger group, I would have said, no, I'm not. Right. It sounds like I answered this question in the previous question, but there was a reason for that. Um, I wanted to build up the background for the historical part that really goes with this secret mysteries. <clears throat> and also build up to one of the loaded language phrases that we had in the sect that we were in, of no private interpretation. The cult leader used that phrase from the Bible and actually reversed it. He took it out of context and reversed the meaning to say that individuals cannot read, study, and interpret and understand the Bible themselves. The phrase, when read in context, actually means that there is no private interpreter who holds the key to unlocking quote-unquote mysteries of the Bible. It's actually saying that anybody can read this, as long as you can read, obviously, and those who could not gathered together and they heard the reading of Scripture. Well, what happened over time in the early church history is that there were many different ancient mythologies that there were early Christians who came out of these this mythologies and were starting to see similarities that they could use their own loaded language to apply to whatever ancient form of religion they came out of. And so what happened was they were they were bringing in ideas that came from in Egyptian mythologies or Greek and Roman gods. And the sum of this was called Gnosticism. And if you read Irenaeus Against Heresies, he goes through many of the different Gnostic groups, how they formed, what doctrines that they had. And literally what he's talking about is loaded language. They're using words and key phrases and mapping it back to the Bible. This was loaded language, you know, century, decades ago, millennia ago. And what these cult leaders are doing today with these secret mysteries is nothing new. It's happened all before. It will happen again. They are basically taking the premise of what was Gnosticism in, in the early church, and they're trying to reincarnate it today. This is going to be a little bit of a spinoff, but something you just said made me think of this. Let's, um, I want to pause for a second and talk about you do not have ears to see or ears to hear and eyes to see um, because this comes up in this context and it was so often used in my group. Um, it's used in, in a lot of groups that are spinoffs of Christianity specifically where they're trying to use the Bible <clears throat> and ears. When Jesus would say that someone doesn't have ears to hear and eyes to see, he didn't literally mean that they didn't understand. 
And part of the reason we know this is because they got really angry. They got so angry because they understood so well that they killed him. So it's not that they literally were like, what's he talking about? I don't, I don't get this. This is so over my head. This is so, so spiritually being said that I just, I'm not tracking. I don't get it. That's not what's happening. What's happening is they're not willing to receive what he's saying. They don't have the humility to say, yeah, I do. I do see you. (laughs) And yeah, I do hear you and I get it. And I'm willing to humble myself and say, wow, you know what? He's got a point. And I need to make a change. And I, I, I need to say some apologies. Um, so that is what Jesus is saying, is that they don't have a, a humbleness to receive it. They absolutely understood what he was saying. I never will forget the difference when we actually <clears throat> left the cult and we started experiencing other new churches, new to us. And... The ministers were not speaking in loaded language. There were no hidden secret mysteries. But we were so trained to believe that this was a huge part of a service that we were actually looking to, I was anyway, looking to try to find the hidden secret mysteries within the context of his sermons. And it was problematic because he would say some word or phrase, and I would go off on some tangent that had no relevance at all to his sermon. And as he would continue progressing forward, I would realize that I've went down this rabbit hole that doesn't even align with what he's saying. And then I'd have to come back and I just missed the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of what he said because I went down this rabbit hole. The other problem that's created with this, and this is a huge problem within the support networks for former members, Whenever you have groups that are built upon secret mysteries and the people escape those groups, they're trained into believing and looking for conspiracy theories. And so they will think, A, the government's out to get them because they were in this cult that the government was allegedly out to get them. They, you know, so many things. I I won't go into details in that, but I have seen people work through that and It's entertaining to watch. I know it's painful for them, but it's entertaining because some of the things that all of these different splinter groups believed is just so off out in left field, and they're all a result of this loaded language. Absolutely. And this um, idea of conspiracy theories and in general, reading into something that isn't there um, and not even reading into it, like you said, trying to find it. It's how we were trained to think. And so we actually have to retrain our brains. We have to retrain our minds to think differently. And it can be done. It takes it takes time because we have to, you know, keep keep debunking our own selves. Um, You know, we we to debunk our leaders. Now we have to debunk our own selves as we move forward. (laughs) Um, Right. And so it gets exhausting, you guys, and you're going to slip up sometimes. Um, But, yeah, we do. We read into stuff that's not there. And I I found myself in this mainstream mainstream uh, church, there was a really huge um, young adults group. And I was barely in it. I was like 29. I barely made the cut because um, it was 20 somethings and kind of fell into this this group that just it was so big. And I'm not going to get into problems with mainstream Christianity, though. I'm happy to call me anytime um, because there are problems. Mm. And one of them is groups can get so big that they don't have proper oversight and leadership. Um, And so it's all of us kind of the blind leading and the blind idea. And they're 
they're reading into stuff. They're like, as one example, um, the book of Revelation, um, it, it references in the beginning, reading it aloud. And this was literally because mm. it was being read to the churches, you know, oral history was huge back then. So right. it literally meant they're reading it aloud so that people can hear it, hear what it's actually going to say. Well, I was with a group of people who thought, oh, I have to read it aloud in order to understand the special mysterious message that it contains. And so they're literally mm -hmm. reading it aloud and having all these aha moments. I'm right back in what I was in already, but I didn't see it right away. It took some time and there was there was pain and losses and trauma from that experience as well. Um, and right. I have friends even now who were a part of a cult experience. Um and yeah, there's a lot of, they, they tend to lean in the direction of conspiracy theories um, and they miss that connection of why that's the case. It's you're, you're thinking the way you were trained to think and we have to, we have to change the way we were tra trained to think. Right. One of the things you mentioned, you talked about the larger groups and I've, I've actually been wanting to talk about this. I think it might even be deserving of its own episode, but I really think it relates to this topic we're on now. When former members who have been trained in loaded language leave a cult and they try to reintegrate with Christian society, you have two categories. You have those who go to the big mega churches, and they're all excited because, I mean, quite literally, it's human nature to believe that there's strength in numbers, and it is exciting. And, and these services are hyped up in many cases to become exciting, which has a whole subset of problems that we won't get into here. But one of the problems as it relates to former cult members, especially those who have been indoctrinated with this loaded language is that, like you said, it's so big that they can't individually work with people who need individual help. And so what happens is these types of people get into collective small groups of, of people. That's how these big churches operate. And you get a group of people who aren't really trained to help someone who has escaped a cult. And Often, these people, ironically, become convinced of some of this loaded language, and so it becomes this whole subgroup within this megachurch of someone who has now just re-indoctrinated <laughs> somebody who wasn't even in the cult, or worse, isn't offering support to help understand what this loaded language means. On the flip side, you have the other group of people who go to small churches because it feels like family and feels like home. And they're programmed with this loaded language, and they don't understand it. Often the smaller churches don't have people who are trained in psychology to understand what this is. And so when they're working with this person, now you've got this, this thing that basically is programmed into their heads that no one else in the church has. And some of some of the former members will defend their belief set, even though it was a cult belief set and not not really fully integrate into a small church. They feel isolated. They feel like they're alone in a crowd. They feel like they're not one of them. And so they start wandering from church to church to church. And my advice in all of this is that, number one, the, the mega churches are problematic for multiple reasons. And I'm not saying it's wrong to join one, etc. But 
you probably need some stepping stones to getting to that megachurch if you're going to attend a megachurch. You need to start small, but you also need to understand when something is uncomfortable that is, has been programmed into your being, you need to understand what it was, why it was programmed, and how it differs from what the other church members believe, and not be offended if you're wrong. You kind of have to humble your pride, which is something that the Bible actually talks about. So my advice is to take it, take baby steps, understand what this loaded language was, understand why it's dangerous to have secret mysteries and why mainstream churches do not have these secret mysteries. And even if you join a small church that you're uncomfortable with and you know is not where you're going to stay, stay there long enough to learn what it is they believe and why, because you may find that the longer you, the more you know about them, the more you actually are like them. And if not a fit, now you know what you see different in mainstream Christianity for the next church that you go to. And I would add, for those of you who maybe are like I was for years and still can be, I still can be this way, um, where stepping into a church at all is just hard. And it's just, it's not where you're at. It doesn't feel safe. Um, it's not something that is really on the table for you right now, whether it's big or small or anywhere in the middle. Um, if looking into whether you're looking into the Bible because you think it may be true or you're just trying to investigate what you had been told and figure out what was accurate, whether you actually believe it to be true or not. So whatever the reason may be, if you're picking up a Bible and you're wanting to look into it, um, <clears throat> I would highly recommend that you go to, here's one idea, um, the Denver Journal. You can Google Denver Journal and what that is, is it's a list of commentaries and other sorts of books that have the stamp of approval by all the elite scholars and just like people who are saying, yes, these people are sound and they wrote these. Um, so it gives you a starting point so you don't read something super potentially wonky by accident. You can always veer off from there, but it would give you somewhere to begin. Um, and get yourself a good commentary, get yourself a good study Bible. A study Bible is going to have notes at the bottom for almost every verse in scripture that's going to help give you the actual context of what um, was going on culturally at the time, um, where it connects to other places in the Bible. So you can see, oh, this is a reference to here. Um, we see that oftentimes with Jesus. We say, oh, that was a reference to Isaiah. Like, okay, I can now go and look at that too and piece it together properly. Um, the reason I highly recommend that is because doing doing um religion doing doing that alone in a room by yourself is also problematic to do that for very long because you can start to see your own special revelations you can kind of become a version of of your own leader in a way where you're just starting to see your own stuff and so those checks and balances and being able to talk with other people is helpful. But if that's not safe for you right now, at least get yourself some really good tools so you can check what you think you're seeing. Because I will promise you this, you guys, you will see stuff based on the lens you had in the cult. It's just impossible for that to be totally gone and ripped off all of a sudden. So that's going to come through and you need something that's going to help guide 
behind you and push back a little bit on what you're seeing and make sure that you're, you know, you're walking along in a healthy way. So don't do it by yourself completely. Get yourself those tools and then bring in, you know, step into groups as you feel like you're able. Right. And I'll reemphasize, go at your own pace. Not everyone can just simply reintegrate. Some people need some time, which we previously mentioned. All right, last question. I was raised in a religious cult. Preachers in the cult referred to the leader's recording in books as the word or the spoken word. It was very deceptive. When outsiders heard us using this phrase, the word, they would have just assumed that we were talking about the Bible. I remember hearing cult members chatting with non-cult Christians about the Word and realized that they were talking about two entirely different things. Why do cult preachers do this? I have two reasons as to why this can happen. Um, I lean towards it being being one, but some, you know, I'm going to give some room here. The answer that gives a little room is that it could be because the leader believes that they have genuinely received special revelation in regards to those words. So they've added to the word, they've subtracted from the word, or they've just all out changed the meaning, the meaning, um, and they're confident in having done that. And so they, they believe what they're saying and, and what it means. Um, it also could be completely intentional and be used as a recruitment tactic to trip people up and trick them into coming to their group. So I'm going to use a word and I know what you think it means. I'm using it differently, but I'm going to use it as an attempt at a bridge so that I look similar enough to you that you want to visit my church, come over, whatever that looks like, where the preacher in the group can then have a better shot at starting to indoctrinate this person into their group. So again, this depends. If I was talking about my own group, they they really believed in this special revelation. They really were like, wow, we're having these aha moments. The, the Holy Spirit's moving. And um, because we also weren't focused on recruitment, that wasn't, that wasn't just, it just wasn't something on our radar. We were way more focused on not being found and remaining hidden in mainstream society than we were about recruiting people. Um, but there are 1000% groups out there where this is absolutely a recruitment tactic and they're doing it on purpose. Um, and ultimately I want to end this with no matter what the motivator is, it, it, the truth is that it's very tricky and deceptive. And it, like I said, it seems to create this bridge between cults and mainstream churches that does not actually exist. And so what I would recommend to you is that you define your terms and that you ask other people to define their terms. So ask people what they mean by words that are key words in the conversation. So to you, you might be thinking, well, oh, no, duh, I know what that means. And if I ask, I'm going to look silly. You mm, won't because right. if it's a key word, if the meaning of that word is the make or break for your answer to what's being said or your response to it, then get that word defined and always be willing to do the same. Always be willing to share your definitions for the terms that you're using because if you are unwilling to I would ask why that is Um, and if it's that I'm just nervous that I'm wrong that's okay Mm -hmm. go ahead and ask them you can phrase it as a question hey this is what this word means to me from what I was taught do you know if that's true or how would you define that so you can always phrase it in a question as well right I, I added this to our list of questions because this is one that always surprises everyone This is a phrase that is so commonly used among cults that every cult seems to, 
identify it with their own cult, thinking that even after they leave, that they were unique in using the word or the spoken word as part of their theology. And in religious cults, the cult leader promotes themselves as a authority on doctrine and scripture. So it's very extremely common. Jim Jones used this phrase for people's temple. He referred to himself as the word, as the spoken word. And whenever his following heard him using this phrase, they knew that it meant Jim Jones' sermons, which were divinely inspired by God, and it led them down the path to their own destruction. But when former members that I've worked with leave, because this is so common, they don't recognize that spoken word, voice of God, the word, are also examples of loaded language. This phrase has special meaning to people in the cult. It has, I actually use the word overloaded keyword whenever I describe words like this because it is a keyword. Yeah, it's a keyword that's used that has this whole series of doctrine. You could preach an entire sermon on this one phrase and not even touch the surface of what the cult believes about this phrase. And because of that, I, I think it becomes so integrated into their theology and into their indoctrination that they don't recognize that they have overloaded this phrase and it has special meaning to them. Yeah, my dad absolutely similarly did what you were just talking about. He, you know, being the leader, being the person who he, it's funny because he not only, quote unquote, I guess in a way defined um, the key terms he he brought them to light, so to speak. Um, he also decided what they were, um, which is something I haven't really thought about before. But he also pinpointed these are the key words, and um, these this this is an exact example, you know, of something he would say the word or the spoken word, um, and it was it was a. I still don't know if to this day I have real clarity on what in the heck he meant by that. I still don't know. Um, I know what it means in the Bible. I, I, I know it means the Bible, and I also know the word is also a term used for Jesus Christ. Um, but, yeah, I still don't think I even know know what he meant, which is really interesting. Right. So this is another example of how this type of theology, how these overloaded keywords or this loaded language becomes used to create splinter groups. You, you mentioned that your group was polygamous. Yours was not the only situation that that came as a result of these loaded lang this loaded language that created splinter groups that were polygamous. There are multiple, and in fact, many of them have members that have contacted me even from other countries. So the the nature of these destructive keywords or these destructive loaded language. Is, is such that it opens up the door for people like Jim Jones, who used the spoken word for himself, to create his own sect, to grow his own sect, and grow it towards destruction. We all know about the Jonestown Massacre and what happened with those people. What is uncommon knowledge today is how many different groups have sprung up because of this. And I think your group is just one of many examples. Yeah, which is crazy to think about. It's crazy to think that a situation like that actually encouraged other groups to spring up. It just blows my mind and it breaks my heart to think about. 
Yeah. And and that's why I say this is one of the subjects that for me it's fun. I find it funny. I, I actually do have a list of these keywords and I'm looking at things like black dog, white dog, or the seven thunders blood gives you rapturing faith. I mean, there are some crazy things that different sects believe. And, you know, each one to I, I should pause and say to whatever individuals went through that experience. I'm not making fun of what you believe. This is just funny to me because I see how weird it is. And I think if you're going through the struggle of deprogramming from loaded language, it's going to be painful right now. But five, ten years from now, you're going to be like me. You're going to look back and say, what on earth were we thinking? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone where the, you know, certain terms were used against you, you know, to hold you down and cause harm and control you. I mean, of course, there's we we have endless empathy for that because we've lived it. Um, But yes, there's there's hope further down the line in the healing process to look back and think, wow, yeah, gosh, that does sound crazy now. Um, But it it takes time to get there. It takes um, work. It takes commitment to that healing process to get there, but it's absolutely possible. And, you know, John and I being able to smile at some of this and roll our eyes is is an indicator (laughs) of that healing. And so I hope that there's encouragement to you in that. Yes, this this was fun. I I have to say this was fun for me. And uh, the last one was not fun for me. It was painful. It was saddening. This one has turned out to be pretty good. If you have questions that you would like to hear answered on our show, please send them to us. You can contact us on the contact page of freeandclearshow.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you become free and clear. Mm-hmm.